Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with yoga therapy pioneer, Gary Kraftsau. Gary has been instrumental in the development of yoga therapy in America over the past 40 years. He began his study of yoga in India with TKV Desikachar in 1974 and received his master's degree in psychology and religion from the University of California at Santa Barbara in 1983. In 1999, he founded the American Vini Yoga Institute, and since then he's become a renowned speaker and teacher and has authored two books that I highly recommend to you, Yoga for Wellness and Yoga for Transformation, both published by Penguin. After years of crossing paths with Gary but never getting the chance to meet, it was a real pleasure to finally connect with him and tap into his vast wealth of knowledge. In our conversation, we discuss his relationship with his longtime yoga therapy mentor, Tiki V. Desikachar, as well as Tantra, some yoga philosophy, and some really personal and timely sharing about how yoga can help us deal with death and dying. But before we get to that conversation, I just want to take a moment to talk about how you can support this podcast. Of course, you could leave a five-star review on iTunes, which does help other people find it, but because I don't have any advertisers, a bigger audience doesn't directly help support the podcast. Each episode takes many hours to produce, scheduling the interview, preparing for it, often taking hours to read the guests' books or watch interviews with them, uh, recording the interview itself, and then, of course, the hours that it takes me to edit, produce, and publish the finished podcast. I don't have anyone helping me. It's all me. 
So for some context, just think about how much you'd tip the barista who spends a few minutes preparing your latte or the waiter or waitress who might spend maybe a little longer serving your meal. Think about all those times you've passed a busker on the street or in the subway and thrown a couple of dollars into their guitar case. If you get anything out of these conversations, all I ask is that you think about throwing a few bucks into my tip jar, which you can do by clicking the support link on the website, medicinepathpodcast.com, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching. Okay, thanks for listening to all of that. And now, my conversation with Gary Kraftsau on The Medicine Path. I thought we'd um, kind of start at the beginning, and I'm wondering what initially drew you to begin practicing and studying yoga, and when did that happen? Wow. Um, well, I, to go way back, I remember my own sort of reflections as a child. I was a, a sort of a strange kid from my parents' perspective because I was very interested in uh, the the challenging dynamic in their relationship. They were surprised that I could see it. And I was interested in sort of issues of life and death, particularly, you know, why we die and so forth. And, um, and uh, uh, then I sort of had this kind of inquiring mind and um, remember that um, at one time in high school, I was with some friends and we were lifting weights and I hurt my back and the, the, my friend's mother was, turns out, the first yoga teacher in Philadelphia where I grew up. And she put me in what we now know as Vajrasana or child's pose and my back relaxed. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. So I already had known something about positions. I was a gymnast in high school and I learned that there were some things you can do for your body to take care of it. I went to college. Um, I ended up in a religious studies class and it's an interesting sort of story because there was a phys ed requirement. And in the religious studies class, I took Hinduism. Uh, and for the phys ed requirement, I took a karate class that was being offered at the university. And I love the Hinduism class and that's where I encountered Patanjali. So that was the first sort of awakening to yoga being more than putting my body in positions to relieve back pain, which is how I first encountered it in high school. Um, and, and, uh, and when I encountered potentially, I was just sort of blown away. I had thought that I was going to go, my mom was into Chinese art. So I always got into the, uh, when I was a kid, I watched Kung Fu and I thought I was going to go to China and study Taoism. Uh, and then I encountered potential. This was my freshman year of college. So for the next uh, semester, I continued in the religious studies and I took a course on Buddhism. Um, uh, but the phys ed department, I didn't like kar the karate uh, the teacher was a, uh, uh, a vet from the Korean War, and his energy was just, I wasn't compatible with his energy. And there was a yoga class being taught in the phys ed department. This was at Colgate University. And um, I took that class, and I don't know whether I should actually say this. I've never really said it publicly, but I'll, I'll say it. And I don't know what your audience will think. I apologize if I offend anyone. But <laughs> I came out of that first class. Now, the woman, by the way, was a woman named Mary Lou Skelton. Mm. And just to give a context, her husband was an ethnomusicologist studying Carnatic music. He was from Yale, and he was the chairman of the music department at Colgate University, where I went to college. And he was leading a study group to India. That's, uh, I'll come to that story in a minute. 
So she had gone to India with him in the early 1960s, um, and she had bad arthritis. And the American consulate general, Albert Franklin, who was the Madras, he was a, the guy in charge of the American consulate in Madras, was a student of Krishnamacharya. And she, he, uh, they met him, and uh, he told her about Krishnamacharya. So back in 1963, thereabouts, Mary Lou Skelton became a student of Krishnamacharya, and that, for the rest of her life, was her dedication of the study and practice and teaching of yoga. So when I met her in 1974, so you know that was 11 years already after her meeting with Krishnamacharya, she was um, teaching through the phys ed department uh, at Colgate University. They only allowed her to teach yoga through the phys ed department. Anyway, I came out of that first class, you know, as a freshman, second semester freshman in college, living on my own, not really understanding anything about diet and nutrition. And I came out of that first class and I, here, here I go. I had the most amazing bowel movement I ever had in my life. <laughs> and I said, wow, there's something here. Because I remember fixing my, my back from my high school friend's mom. Uh, and then I was totally fascinated with Patanjali. And six months later, they invited me. They were taking a, a study group of music students to South India um, they, who were doing studying classical Indian dance and um, Carnatic music, so Veena and Mridangam and so forth. And I was in the religious studies department, and she said, do you want... She felt a connection with me, and she invited me to go. So in 1974, in September, I, I flew to Madras and spent six months there. I met uh, Krishnamacharya and Deskachar and began this study and contemporaneously, and this is a, a little bit ahead for what you wanted to ask me about Tantra later. As I was meeting Krishnamacharya and Deskachar and beginning the study of yoga with them, I was also, because I wasn't really a music student and I needed course credit, they set me up uh, at Madras University. And that was something that only later I realized how amazing opportunity it was. There was a teacher who was the chairman of the religious studies department, but he was also a, not only a sort of a well-known and respected scholar, but also a well-known and, and loved mystic. And he was a Shaivite Siddhanta master. Shaivite Siddhanta is a South Indian tantric lineage. So really right from the beginning when I went to India, I was studying yoga with Krishnamacharya and Deskachar. Of course, Deskachar was my main teacher, but Krishnamacharya said things to me, told me things, gave me specific teachings. And I was studying uh, Shaivite Tantra in, uh, in Madras with Devasanapati. Hmm. And, and so that's, and that's how I got, I got there. And, and just quickly to end that story. So I stayed there six months, came back, graduated uh, from college a year and a half later, and then went back and lived in Madras for two years and then went back. Deskachar more or less kicked me out. He said, you know too much, go home and teach. Uh, then I did. And then I went back again. I went to graduate school. Then I went back to India, back and forth. And anyway, from that time in 74 till about 2000, I spent about four years living there and Mm -hmm. That's the first answer to your question. Yeah. Well, you know, I've had uh, Richard Miller and Larry Payne on the podcast, and I've had them talk about their initial meetings with um, Deskachar and Krishnamacharya. And I'm wondering um, what that first meeting was like and what your initial impression of Deskachar was, or Krishnamacharya, if you had a chance to actually talk to him. Well, they were very different. Um, um so I was 19 years old in 1974. So if you want, you can do the math, you guys, who's ever listened. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, I was, I'm younger than Larry and Richard, but I was there five or more years before them. So I was uh, quite a young man. And um, 
my initial meeting with uh, Desikachar or Deshikachar is probably how you correctly pronounce it, was um, uh, uh, at 19, as a, as a college, young college sophomore, uh, with uh, long hair down my back and, you know, and he was this modern Indian whose father was an Orthodox Brahmin, like from another uh, time, another generation. Um, he was, Krishmachar was 50 years older than Deskachar. So, and Deskachar had Western science education, but he was really, you know, raised in a very conservative, actually Orthodox family. Um, so he didn't know exactly what to make of us Western students, but he had been involved with uh, a J. Krishnamurti and, and met a lot of Europeans. He was very open and very friendly. He had no pretense. He was, uh, he just seemed to have penetrating insight. I felt like he could look at me and understand what I was thinking. Um, but he was very welcoming and I was, I, I was, I felt that I was able to share and talk with him about anything. There were certain things he was reticent to talk about. And lay, only later I found out that I did things because of my ignorance of his culture that he found offensive, but never let me know that they, he was offended by them. Like for example, handing him his fees as, when I was leaving with my left hand. I mean, I'm this 19 year old kid grew up in Philadelphia. What did I know about that? I had no prior relationship to India. So, hmm. um, but he was, he was never, uh, he never made me feel uncomfortable um, until we got deeper into a relationship. Then he could be very, uh, very uh, challenging. Let's say that in, in his mm -hmm. efforts to help me grow, I think I could say. So in the beginning, he was very tolerant, of very tolerant, very open uh, and, 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 you know, very brilliant uh, and very concerned about uh, me and my understanding and how I thought and, and so forth. I'm um, very complimentary about my ability to understand uh, his teachings. In fact, he said to me early on, even back then, don't think you know what you know about yoga from what you've learned from me. And I didn't even understand what he was saying. And he, he said that I had been on this journey many lifetimes, and that's why I understand the things I understand, etc. Mm -hmm. With Krishnamacharya in these early years, I think that the honest truth was I was afraid of him. Um, he had such an aura of, of power and authority. Um, and uh, one time I walked into a class, brought me into a class that he was doing with his father. And it was all in Sanskrit. It was, they were talking about the Brahma Sutras and the Shankaracharya and Ramanuja commentaries. And he would talk in Sanskrit, basically. Then he would look at me and he would say, did you understand? And all I could say was no. You know, then he, he gave me a banana and said, make sure you eat it. You know, things But later <laughs> as I got, you know, around the house with him, he would say some things to me, like uh, there are certain things he said to me that I'll never forget. And one of the most important ones, and th this you'll understand perhaps, but I don't know that your, uh, your listeners will right away understand it. But he said that Purusha Kyati, Viveka Kyati and Ishvar Kyati are all the same. So self-realization, God-realization, and that dis awakening to discriminative awareness is really one process. So I had this kind of relationship with him where I was a student of his son primarily, but he talked to me and would offer me just sort of little snippets of, of wisdom and insight. Yeah, he'd like drop some truth bombs on you and passing yeah. you in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do, I do remember one early meeting with him, which is that I was, uh, he was sitting on the porch where I always go upstairs to class. And I was afraid to go up the stairs that first time. I just was, because I just didn't want to put myself in his space. I wanted to be so respectful. At least that's what I told myself then. Looking back, I think I was just afraid. Um, I didn't know uh, that I was, I didn't feel worthy to be, you know, just appear on his porch somehow. Mm. And just, so it was just, a lot of respect for me uh, of both of them. Later, as I matured, I understood more uh, that, you know, no, they're, they're human beings and not perfect either. Um, but what I always had nothing but awe about was the, the depth and breadth of their knowledge and understanding of this tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that um, strikes me about Deskachar, especially because he was so generous with his teaching um you know there there he released many books and there's many videos of him being interviewed and uh his depth and breadth of knowledge and his ability to to communicate it in a way that's very clear and relevant to someone like me uh yeah a western modern person far removed from the life of someone like his father where he got his teachings from you're absolutely right. He was an amazing bridge in that way. I mean, he, he told me, and this might be, I don't know if you've heard this, so you might enjoy this. He told me that, and he used the image of apples, and that, that's a whole other dis- story about the apples. But anyway, he told me his father grew a huge apple tree that was full of fruit, and he picked one apple and ate a part of it, and he's sharing a little bit of what he ate with us. So mm. that means he was in awe of his father. That is, Deskachar was in awe of his father's great vast knowledge and he his own self-concept is he had very little compared to what his father had Mm. yeah and so humble too that's another thing that i really love about deskachar yeah um so i'm wondering to go back to that early time when you're studying um shaivite tantra while uh, working with deskachar was there any time when you when you brought the things you were learning from your tantra teacher to Desikachar and asked him for his take on things? Or? Oh, of course, of course. But remember, I was uh, I want to be clear about this um, because I've had I'll, I'll speak just a little bit about my um, sort of um, cross cultural immersion in tantric studies. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 19 when I was studying with Devasanapati, this great Shaivite Siddhanta tantric, both scholar and mystic. Um, and so he was sharing with me, um, I'll give, I'll say something technical, just it's not important if you don't have an, an understanding of this tradition, but this, in Shaivite Siddhanta, there's a f- early form of writing that could be used in Western language uh, called bridal mysticism. And it's really about the journey of the soul back to God. Um, using the metaphor of of, uh, of God as the bridegroom and the soul as the bride approaching the the marriage, um, and and so it was. It's very couched in heavy sort of um, poetic imagery uh, symbolism, um, and so it's in that context that the teachings are sort of hidden. And this guy was revealing relevant teachings about that. It was a very right-handed path. It's not what we think about in the modern Western world about Tantra at all. Um, um, and so I would share 
some of these ideas, uh, like for example, there's an exquisite story, and this I got from Deskachar in talking with him about the teachings I was receiving from David Sinopoli, and I'm talking about in the early 70s. It's the story of the kitten and the monkey. I don't know if you know this story, but uh, the and it and it and it's about uh, Vaishnavite tantra. And the story comes from the Vaishnav tantra lineages, whereas I, which is the lineage of Krishnamacharya, they were Vaishnavite, and and I was studying both Vaishnav perspective on Upanishads. That's one of the main things I did early on in my study with them. Right, it's how the monkey and the cat. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go carry, into that. Carry the children. Yeah. Please. Yeah, well, no, so, so yeah, exactly. So this has got to do with Vatakalai and Tenkalai. There are two sects of South Indian Vaishnavites who actually battled with each other in Kanchipuram. In the 1500s, they had to get a Muslim magistrate to settle the issue about which way to paint the te- temple elephant, you know, based on the, you know, the what I, I respectfully call the racing stripes on Krishnamacharya's forehead. There's two different ways of painting them depending <laughs> on the sect. Mm-hmm. So the kitten monkey story is if you look at a, at a kitten, the mama cat just picks it up by the scruff of the neck and the kitten goes limp and lets the mama carry it. Whereas the monkey, because the monkeys climb trees, the mama doesn't hold the baby. The baby clings to the mother as she climbs the trees. So this is about the soul's movement to God. Is it by surrender or by human effort? By the monkey is by human effort and the kitten is the symbol of surrender. Um, so these are the, it's this level of Tantra study that I had initially um, with uh, with both Daskashar's teachings and uh, the Shaivite teachings. Then, uh, when I uh, when I left after my first longer stay in Madras, my second trip was two years long, and I returned um, home um, from India after two years. At that point, my family, my parents, had moved from Philadelphia to Maui, and this was in 1976. Um, I graduated college and went to India for two years. They moved to Maui. So when I came back from India in 1978, I landed on Maui. That was my home. And the year, that, that month that I landed, uh, a new, I had a friend that I had met because I had been on Maui before I went uh, to India for those two years. And I, I first went there in 1976 and I met a guy um, and he was the... Uh, um, on the, he was sort of the, the head of the board of directors at that time of, the, of a Tibetan Buddhist society on Maui. And when I returned, uh, uh, this Lama named Lama Tenzin, who Kalu Rinpoche, who was a great uh, uh, Shampa Kagyu tantric master, that's another story, um, of course, he had arrived on Maui, Lama Tenzin. And we met and we became personal friends. So I ended up for 20 years being on the board of directors of this Maui Tibetan Dharma Society. And uh, so I studied Tibetan Dharma, which is Tibetan Tantra, for 20 years. In addition to my ongoing, you know, work with Deskachar, Krishnamacharya, had been, you know, 10 years after, our, well, about 15 years after I met him, he died, or 14 years maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Krishnamacharya died. Um, but I had a relationship with Kala Rinpoche, who was about the same level of relationship, maybe a little less than I had with Krishnamacharya. He came to Maui several times. He was the same age as Krishnamacharya. So these were great tantric masters. A Vaishnav, a Shaivite who was the same age, Deva Sanapati was old as well. And then a Kalarimbashe, a Tibetan Buddhist. So I had this three-pronged exposure to Tantra in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, in uh, Shaivite Siddhanta, and in the Vaishnav Tantra, the Krishnamacharya lineage. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering at this point, if you could help to clarify what Tantra is and how it relates to yoga. 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm just we're just talking sort of off the cuff uh, in this call, so I'm, it's not me preparing a formal answer to that. But what I'd like to say to the community, um, and actually, may I um, give you one more piece of context about this before I give you my simple answer? Sure. Um, when I came back to Maui after those years in India, uh, and I met Lama Tenzin, and we became friends, and I ended up becoming a supporter of his Dharma Center. And I told him, by the way, that you know I'm a, I'm I'm deeply immersed in this Vedic yogic training. And he said, that's no problem. You please, that, that Tantra and Buddhism are an extension of Vedic teachings and you're welcome to participate and take the empowerments and consider it a blessing without making vows and commitments that you don't feel are appropriate for you. Anyway, that same year that I met them, there was the emergence of the Maui New Age Tantra, which was like California sex therapy. Hmm. So like I met some of those guys because some of those guys ended up studying yoga with me. And I, I was like, gosh, this is nothing like the Tantra I studied in India. <laughs> and I felt like I literally took refuge in the Tibetan Dharma center because maybe I was afraid. I, it's, you know, I, what I realized that their understanding of Tantra was, was a form of sex therapy. And I was sure that I needed it, but that's not what I <laughs> was, you know, that's not what I was understanding about Tantra. So I kind of mm -hmm. took refuge in, in the uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist Tantra while I was living in Maui and then, you know, would go back and forth to India and continue my studies of Vedic Tantric teachings. Uh, so Tantra is, I just want to be always clear about this. Tantra is a form of yoga. Tantra is not some different tradition. It's all one continuum. So Tantra is a system of yogic practices, teachings that have yoga and texts about transformation oriented towards either like yoga, traditional yoga, mukta, moksha, or kaivalya is this, this sort of potentially term. You could say mukta or moksha, release or freedom, or, or one of the words we use is mukti, so liberation. But tantra is also oriented towards boga or bukti, which means experience and enjoyment uh, of the things in life as a way of understanding uh, oneself, mastering oneself, actually ultimately mastering the forces of life, um, that complex web of life that extends from our, our own thoughts and feelings to the complexity of our physiology, to the interpersonal relationships uh, in our family and in our society, and then in our you know world at a global level, and then at a cosmic level, even at the level of astrology. It's like understanding the totality of the inter- relationships and mastering those relationships in such a way that we um, we master our will, our, our, our kriya shakti and our, our power, prana shakti and our, our, our capacity to understand jnana shakti and be aware that you could call that chit shakti. So that's tantra is, you know, an evolution of that same yogic journey, but not just only oriented towards renunciation and ultimate liberation, but also about mastering life itself in the world or, or beyond. Hmm. Um, Kachar, you know, I don't think he really talked explicitly about Tantra very often, but through students of his, like yourself and Mark Whitwell, you can see evidence that Tantra was a part of what he taught. And 
you know, I think he, he tended to reference the Yoga Sutra as the primary text of yoga rather than the Tantras. And I'm wondering if you know why it wasn't a bigger part of what he taught publicly. Yeah, I, I, I'll say some things about that. Um, so according to Krishnamacharya, from what I understood anyway, um, the main source texts of yoga were, were Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and Bhagavad Gita. Uh, and then there are core Upanishadic teachings. Um, then the tantras, um, so this isn't historical, and I don't know that Mark and I would necessarily 100% agree about this, um, but I'm talking about it not from a, a, a deep philosophical perspective, just in historical perspective. The word sutra also refers to a body of, uh, of text and a style of writing, and the word tantra, besides its other meanings, also refers to a body of text and a style of writing. And the tantras emerged, we don't know exactly, uh, but close to a thousand years after the sutra period, or maybe 500 years, we don't know exactly when. So the tantric texts that are yogic, like Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Garanda Samhita and Shiva Sutras are later texts and that the source texts are the earlier texts, the sutras, which include uh, Yoga Sutras, Sankhya Karika, that was one of the big ones, uh, because the, the actual Sankhya Sutras of, uh, of Kapila are lost. So the Sankhya Karika is from Ishvara Krishna, that's the oldest one we have. Um, and then Bhagavad Gita, which is sort of this unique, really ancient, some people say it was written before the rest of the Mahabharata. So it's an old, Bhagavad Gita is an ancient text, more ancient than the Tantras. Mm -hmm. So Krishnamacharya taught those as the source texts of yoga. But Deskashar also taught uh, the Tantra text. I learned from him aspects. I didn't, my extensive studies with him were primarily Yoga Sutras, uh, one, less with uh, uh, Gita, and then several core Upanishads that I studied with him, um, yeah. particularly Taittiriya and Kata Upanishads, where there's source yogic teachings. But we also looked at Garanda Samhita, Hatha Yoga, Pradipika, and Shiva Sutras. So he did teach some tantric texts. One of the things about uh, Deskachar's style of teaching is that he didn't uh, give information uh, he related to people from uh, his students from where they were, what their interest was and what their capacity was. So what's interesting is if you talk to different ones of us who had private relationship with him, we all got slightly different teachings. I always joke, it's kind of like what, uh, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Kind of what happens in relationship with a teacher like Deskachar is unique to you and your individual relationship with him. Mm. Um, like, for example, you know, Sonia Nelson, who I have great love and respect for, she was a folk singer back in the 60s, and she loves that singing, oh, and she became a master. Hmm? I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, she's a very interesting woman, but she became a master Vedic chanter. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and, but I was interested in philosophy and tantra from the beginning because of Deva Sanapati, the Shaivite man. And then, and then I had all this Tibetan experience. So he would share things with me when I asked him. So let me give you an example. When we talk about chakras, for example, I remember that I started asking him about that. And then he would just, you know, 
he had a very unusual way of teaching. I would say that in modern world, many students wouldn't accept that way of teaching, by the way. So um, he would just pick up his phone in the middle of my class and call the Mandiram, that's the yoga school, and call some of one person to his house. So I was having uh, lessons in his house. And, and he wouldn't say anything to me about what he was doing. And the guy would come and then they would do some talk about something or other. And then he would leave. And then Deskachar would look at me and say, so what did you see? Hmm. And based on how I would respond, then he would begin to give me teachings. So I would say something and he said, oh, you saw that. Well, that means, and then he would give me some teachings like third chakra is is pulled up high or third chakra is dropped down low. I don't know, because I never heard him talk in public about these things. So I don't know who else received these teachings, um, but I had an extensive teachings with him about a lot of the symbol systems that are employed in, or that are utilized in, in the latter tantric sort of uh, language. And him giving me, like everything else about this lineage, very concrete, practical ways of understanding and applying it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, from everything I've been able to find when he's asked about the chakras, he basically says something like, what's the point of even talking about them? They're something that you can experience uh, for yourself, but every description is going to be different, so it's kind of pointless to even talk about them. Um, and I, that's about as far as I can ever find that he's gone, but it's interesting to hear well, that. Well, let, let me give you a metaphor of asana to help you understand what I understood from him about chakras. Yeah, please. So for me, in my work, and actually from a young age, because I was a gymnast in high school, which is something I didn't mention earlier. So I was really not interested particularly when I came to India to study yoga, it was to study yoga from the perspective of religious studies. Although, of course, I had that bowel movement and, and uh, <laughs> you know, and I knew there was something there, but I didn't really know what, but I was really more interested in the philosophy because that's just where I was coming from. Um, so I would ask him, why should I do these postures? You know, what, like I would say, what does downward dog have to do with Kaivalya? I remember asking him that mm. one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he said, look, the reason we do asana is to build the prana shakti we need to master our minds. Mm. And that's the same thing also with pranayama. And then he says, but there's all kinds of benefits of asana practice, but it's not about the asana. It's about your body and how it serves you when you're practicing it. So these postures, he said, are tools to help you understand and transform your own condition at an, for example, at a structural level. They're not just structure, but if you can't, if you think about it, with asana, you're cultivating a conscious relationship to your own spine and your functional anatomy via the breath. And it's really that's what asana is about. It's about understanding yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not about the asana. Don't get fixated or w- worship at the icon of the mastering the posture. It's not about the postures. It's the postures are tools to help you understand and transform your own condition. So in that same way, the chakras aren't, let me add one more point about the asana. I used to joke with my students, asanas are, have no value of their own. The only value they have is the value they, they offer you when you're practicing them. And then I would joke, I don't know if you in Canada saw the, the movie Toy Story. Mm-hmm. You know, so the joke is unless you believe Toy Story, asanas don't have an agenda of their own. They have no value. The only value they have is 
the value that happens for you in the process of practicing them. And the value is in helping you understand and transform your own condition. So in that same way, he said, it's not really meaningful to study chakras at an external level because all they are are symbol systems to help you understand yourself and, you know, your motivations, your desires, and your behavior, uh, and your thoughts, your stories you tell yourself about yourself, your changing emotional states, uh, and, and your energy and how that, that energy and your desires push you into action. So he made this kind of a link that, and this is, he, he said it's not linear like this, but your action comes from your thoughts, your thoughts come from your feelings, your feelings uh, come from your desires, and your desires come from your samskaras, your conditioning. Mm-hmm. So chakras is like a map or a model of, of your samskaras and that whole link between your conditioning, your, um, your desires, your emotions and feelings, your thinking process and the stories you tell yourself and how that all leads to behavior in the world that rein, that reinforces and creates further conditioning. And so this is like a depth, let me use the word D-E-P-T-H, depth psychological, ancient depth psychological model to help human beings surface their patterns and transform them and ultimately become free of them. Well, that's interesting. I was under the impression that that whole kind of uh, depth psychology overlay on the chakras relating to, you know, the root chakra representing your security, like the base of Maslow's pyramid. It was my my understanding that that was something that Jung came up with as a kind of thought experiment in an attempt to make, uh, to like repurpose the chakra model for Western psychology. I didn't know that uh, there was any of that kind of evolutionary process associated with the chakras in anything older. Well, so, so, you know, there's, this is, it's a very interesting discussion here. And let me, I want to be sort of full disclosure about something. When I brought some of these ideas to Deskachar, he just would say, that makes a lot of sense, you know, but but when you talk about if the, the the language coming from the tradition was used more like around the guys that the, what what they call the gruntis, mm-hmm. the Brahma grunti, the uh, uh, Vishnu grunti, and the Rudra grunti, which are not, so huh? Yes, but yeah. but they're about if you if you sort of analyze them, they're about desire, action, and ignorance. Associated with which of the gruntis? Uh, desire is Brahma Granti, action is Vishnu Granti, and ignorance is Rudra Granti. And the Grantis are connected to the chakras, and you know, w- w- desire is connected to samskara. And you know, the root is is that root base. So actually, you know, Jung was a smart guy. Mm-hmm. He didn't make this stuff up. Maslow came later, obviously, but he mm-hmm. didn't make this stuff up. They just had insight into this ancient system. And this ancient system is not unique, actually, in India. If you study, uh, as I have um, in my academic world, I've studied what I, I would call, I don't want anybody to take this too literally, but I kind of jokingly call it sort of the ancient Hebrew Tantra, which is the Kabbalah and mm-hmm. the Svirot, so the, the ten Svirot, so there, and the tree of life. There are many models that overlay the human system that talk about these same kinds of ideas. Mm-hmm. These are kind of universal archetypes 
Um, sure. So a, a chakra is like an archetypical sort of symbol system, helping people understand and transform themselves. But basic teachings from India is that yoga, the, 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 the higher purpose of yoga is to surface some scars so we can become freed of them and then realize our true nature. Mm-hmm. So as you're practicing <clears throat> and you're becoming more attentive to your, your thoughts and your underlying desires and your conditioning and things like that, <clears throat> what's the pro- process of transforming those samskaras? Is the noticing of them enough to create a kind of releasing movement? It's a great, it's a great question, sir. So, uh, you know, uh, by the way, I just want to give you uh, 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 one more in- bit of information to help me answer that question for you. That, that in the yogic tradition, uh, that way predates all this Western psychological model. We have this notion of Buddha Shuddhi, which is the purification of the Buddhas. The Buddhas are the chakras, right? The Buddhas the are elements. The elements, right? But Buddha also, Buddha is a very interesting word. It not only means element, but it also means the past. I didn't know that. And it also means, by the way, ghosts, really? <laughs> spirits. So it has multiple meanings. So Buddha Shuddhi means purification purification of the elements, which also means purification of the past. So it has to do with our sort of, like we're embodied, consciousness is embodied, is, this is Purusha Prakriti idea. Consciousness is, is embodied in Prakriti. And that's the samskara, the great samskara that causes rebirth. So uh, if you look at the earth element, it has to do with smell. And all the things, like you think about the smell of uh, this morning I made a fresh pot of coffee and this smell drew me in. You know, you think about all of the identification and attachment to the world that happens via the senses. So each chakra, smell, taste. Are you following what I mean? Sight. So there's an Yeah, ang- so so each of the elements is associated with a with a sense. It's associated with both uh, uh, what we call jnanendria, which is a sense, but also a karmendria, which is an organ of action. So that means, and I didn't think of it now, but there it is that I said that one, my, one of my first recognitions in yoga was this amazing bowel movement. That's the karmendri of the root chakra. Smell and, and you know, uh, so each, each chakra relates to a, a sense perception, a jnanendriya, and a karmendri, an organ of action. And then Bhutta Shuddhi is about starting to see what you're doing at each of these levels in your life. And then coming back to your question. So yes, the first part is surfacing it. That's Svadhyaya. Uh, Surfacing, you know, what are these patterns? Like most of us aren't even aware that we're running patterns. Mm -hmm. Most of us aren't even aware of our cognitive bias and our group think, for example. I mean, you're a Canadian, but you, I'm sure, are watching this whole sort of political drama that's going on in the, in the West, in the United States, particularly today. And there's so much groupthink and cognitive bias on both sides. You know, this is not a statement about politics, it's a statement about human psychology. We have unexamined ideas and we believe things based on how we want them to be. Mm-hmm. And we, so this is all like we need to surface all these patterns at, at a very deep level. You know, the things that we're attached to, the things that we're uh, striving after, the way that we throw ourselves into behavior in order to fulfill our desires without really examining of those things that we desire are really going to fulfill us and so forth. So this first part is this deep self-investigation that's that's surfacing. 
you know, Descartes used to use the image of the sun. Like I lived in Hawaii for 30 years, actually. And I remember that when I first started to plant a garden there, um, it was really difficult. The, the kukui grass there in Hawaii, the roots are really deep. And you can't really pull them out. The only way you can get rid of them is expose the roots to the sun. You have to turn the soil over. And he said that image is exactly what we're doing in yoga. We're exposing the samskaras to the chidjoti, the light of consciousness. So that's the first step. Mm, it's, then, like, uh, it's like when you're preparing the garden and you lift up a big rock, you turn it over and it exposes all the creepy crawlies underneath, right? Correct. And, <laughs> and, and the light of that exposure, the sun, you know, that's, so it's the light of self-awareness, the, what, what he called the, the uh, um, let me, what's the, excuse me for a second. I'm just having a, a senior moment here in the, um, <laughs> Well, anyway, it's it's Chidjoti. It's the light of consciousness. It's the, oh, I know, the yat, sorry, there, I, I just lost the phrase, the Jnanagni. The Jnanagni is the flame of knowledge, the flame of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So as you expose those roots, but th so that's, and he said that's part of what Svadhyaya is. Svadhyaya is a process of surfacing the patterns. Pratipaksha then, Pratipaksha Bhavanam, which we know from, you know, Patanjali's way of dealing with, uh, you know, of mastering Yama, uh, is to reframe. So it's first is to surface and then to reframe. If you go deeper into the chakra symbol system, then you see that the chakras are, okay, I'm going to use a very pragmatic Western way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you followed what, what happened in, um, in parts of Yugoslavia and in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam with unexploded ordnance and kids playing in the fields uh, and then getting blown up by unexploded landmines. Mm -hmm. So the chakras are like maps of the landmines. But the chakras are also like a treasure map, like a Pirates of the Caribbean is a, you know, like you have a map that helps you find the treasure that's buried. So the chakras are both a map of the landmines and a map of the treasures that are buried and hidden within us. Like you were saying earlier, when uh, when we talked prior to this uh, this podcast interview, about it's not just a matter of realizing you're you're free and pure and there's nothing to do. It's maybe ultimately true that that treasure exists within you, that you are truly free and pure. But we have patterns, and so the chakras offer a map of where those patterns are in our own unique individual condition. Just like the asanas can reveal to you you know, the structural imbalances in your body and help you transform them. The chakras reveal what the landmines are in your own system, and they also reveal what the treasure is. So Svadhyaya surfaces the landmines. Pratipaksha reframes from the perspective of the treasure that's innately buried within you. And then Sankalpa, so these are the three tools, Svadhyaya, Pratipaksha, and Sankalpa, is the affirmation and commitment to do the work on an ongoing basis so that you live more from the perspective of servicing the treasures that are within you and less from that kind of being plugged in and identified with the landmines. Hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah. I'm wondering if you could give like a concrete example of, uh, you know, that flip side of the, the treasure and the kind of unhealthy pattern that accompanies it. As yeah. It, so for example, relates, if you go to the root, as it, as, yeah, as it relates to a particular chakra. Yeah. Yeah. And we can go through the whole map if you want. I mean, if you look at the root chakra, uh, you know, this is, and, 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 and I had long talked with Deskachar about this because the, um, 
these ancients understood what human embodiment or understood an, a level of a human embodiment that we uh, we are understanding today in modern science and uh, even modern psychology. So that root chakra is related to the, the number one biological imperative for all living beings, which is survival. Mm -hmm. Right? And then if you look at the second chakra, it overlays the biological imperative of reproduction. Mm -hmm. And the third chakra, the biological imperative, if, you know, because we're sort of like human beings or pack animals or something like that, it, it, it has to do with status in, in our tribe or in our pack. And then, you know, there's community and family building in the fourth chakra, et cetera. So there's a, there's a way of understanding these things. So if we come back to the, the root chakra, so trust, self-confidence, or that would be third, sorry, trust, uh, stability, uh, safety, these kinds of issues are related to survival. And uh, a lack of trust and insecurity are examples of a dysfunction. So if we think that our uh, like, for example, if you uh, uh, go one step further, if you understand the reality of human embodiment, one of the words that we can use to describe it is impermanence. Every one of us is alive now, but if we really think about it deeply, we all know that this life is going to end. Mm -hmm. So if we think that our security is based on the longevity of our body, we're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So to surface, you know, what is really a source of security or safety? What can you really trust? Because if we put our faith in something that is not, not sustainable, we're creating context for suffering. Right. We're actually creating insecurity. Yes. So that's like a, the opposite. It's like a house built on a bad foundation. Exactly. So this is a longer discussion. I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I just came from a conference at Yoga International. And so I'm reflecting on this right now because I got, you know, they always send feedback after we do conferences and my sort of experience over 25 30 years of teaching conferences is the feedback is so interesting like in the same class people say this was the most transformational experience and other people say oh this was like so there was nothing here uh, you know what i mean it's like everybody sees the same <laughs> event in different ways based on their own patterning where they're coming from yeah so like what, the, what we're ready to receive at that point in time too makes such a huge difference yeah so the chakra, so I'm, I'm going to reflect back on this chakra. It's a complicated system. Uh, it's a profound system. I have a lot of students uh, and, and graduates even of my program who are professional licensed Western healthcare, mental health providers. So lots of psychologists, even several psychiatrists. And what they have said to me is that as they took the time to really learn this particular model and how to apply it, to them, it's the it's like apply it's like one of the most sophisticated and comprehensive systems of applied psychology or psychotherapy that they've ever encountered. Mm. 
but it takes time to learn it. And people, people in the West don't want to study. Like one of the feedback I got people, uh, you know, for the class I taught on chakras was it's so complicated. It's just tech, so technical. Like how do we actually use it? The thing is it takes time to learn how to use it. People want to get every, we have this acceleration phenomenon in modern yoga. We want to learn it Monday, teach it Tuesday, train teachers on Wednesday. <laughs> so true. It's like, and to learn it means you learn the color associated with it, the crystal associated. You do your best to memorize the Sanskrit name. And then <laughs> maybe like one or two qualities that are associated with that chakra, which is probably based on the work of Anodea Judith or someone. Well, you, I'm glad you said it and not I, but yes. <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> so, I mean, this this is a mirror. The, the Sanskrit word darshanam uh, is a very important term for me. Darshanam, uh, the yoga philosophy text. The philosophy, the, darshan is a word in Sanskrit that often in Western sort of academics is translated as philosophy. But really, the root of it is drish, which means to see. So darshanam is like a mirror that helps you see yourself. Mm-hmm. So asana is a kind of a mirror. Asana is a darshan. It helps you see what's going on in your body and gives you a means of transforming it. So this whole symbol system of chakras is a tremendous darshanam. It's a tremendous mirror to help us see our patterns, but we have to be willing to look at it. And we have to go beneath the surface. Mm. Uh, and, and these uh, traditions offer tools for going beneath the surface. But first you have to learn what the tools are. Um, and it takes time and study yeah it asks a lot of the practitioner which um isn't so attractive as like an easy answer or a quick mantra to help solve your insecurity issues or something yeah <clears throat> my wife is an astrologer and when she talks astrologer or western uh mostly hellenistic mostly western uh-huh. but cool. she does she does have some roots in ayurveda in vedic astrology but uh, when she talks to me about astrology, I can't help but see it as another darshana, a way to just, like, just another lens or a mirror to look at your life and to reflect on it. It's not going to give you the answers or the kind of prime directive of your life, but it's a tool that you can use if you want to understand your life. I agree 100%. It's like, it's like another darshanam. It's, like a, uh, it's sort of like a map of, of potential landmines and treasures that are within us mm, yeah i love that <laughs> okay uh hmm. that was a pretty heavy discussion on the chakras let me i hope uh, <laughs> it's not too much for your community i apologize if it is well this is you know this is one of the things about you is that you do hold a lot of uh knowledge and i do appreciate that and i think like one of the other things that I like about your work is that you use the model of the Panchamaya koshas as mm. a way to help people explore themselves. And that's one that I found just to be, and that's one of the things it comes from the Upanishads and I find the Upanishads um, put forth a lot of the teachings in a very like kind of more simple, clear, relatable way than maybe the earlier texts did. And the Panchamaya kosha model for me is just like such a perfect model for how we're we're constructed and it's also like i call it like a map to the heart and sweet i think you can overlay a yoga practice on top of the panchamaya kosha from practicing asana to doing breath work to doing meditation to doing more devotional practices as like the vehicle that takes you through this map to the heart absolutely i first of all i wrote a book 
not first of all, but I was thinking that that second book I wrote back in the 19, early 1990s, uh, Yoga for Transformation, is following the Panchamaya model um, mm, right. uh, and, 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 and linking each dimension with the practice. But I, I do want to just say, since I have a public venue now, just by the way, Deskatar used to make a point about this. If you study, this is in Taittiriya Upanishad, the Pancha Maya. The word kosha is not in the uh, Taittiriya Upanishad. It's a com- it's coming from a later commentary. So, and it's an oh. interesting mm. discussion about you know the word Maya in this context means to pervade and to consist of, and and then the kosha means to contain. Um, so he used to make the distinction that we call it Pancha Maya. Uh, because this, each one pervades the the, um, the pranamaya pervades the anamaya, and the manamaya pervades pranamaya and anamaya. You know that, and if you think about that, it, um, it this, if you start to think about it in relation to what's going on, what the deepest part of us is our heart. Remember Joseph Campbell, Bill Moyer interview became very famous in America. Follow your bliss. Yes, that's the. Anandamaya, that's what, in fact, you know, in the Upanishad, they have an image of a bird with a head, a body, uh, two wings and a tail. Those are the five mayas. And the head is the, uh, is the Anandamaya. Um, uh, it's leading us, what's, it's what leads us forward. Or the head of the bird at the Anandamaya level, excuse me, is what's called Priya. Um, you know, what we love, what, what, we, what guides us in our life. And that's your, what you were saying, the heart. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a beautiful model, um, and and definitely uh, that was the first one. The chakras came later for me with, in my study with him. The first model that uh, I started to use and helped me understand actually the journey of yoga therapy was the Panchamaya model. Mm. Mm. Can we speak a little bit about uh, yoga therapy? I would be happy to actually. Yeah. So. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was how the approach might be different for someone who is offering yoga therapy versus teaching people individually and what distinguishes yoga therapy from private one-to-one yoga. Yeah, well, in the same way that that Tantra is a form of yoga, it's really more correctly said called Tantric yoga. Uh, it's yoga therapy is a subset of yoga it's not a separate thing, but it has a different sort of goals and orientation. Um, yoga therapy is, has more short-term goals like Ayurveda uh, in terms of uh, reducing symptoms of suffering, improving function, shifting one's perspective about oneself, et cetera. So in a, in a, in a private it very much depends upon why your student comes to you and what you're uh, qualified to offer them. But for example, a private yoga student could come and want to learn how to use. So there's different in a, in a, not in our lineage, which I feel like you're very connected to, but in the general uh, sort of way yoga is taught in the West today, someone might come to learn the asana. And they might come in a private class to learn how they can do the asanas. In our lineage, if someone comes for a private yoga class, they might want to learn how they can use the asana to help them in their bodies. And in yoga therapy instead, if someone has, we just talk about an asana class, someone has a disc problem 
or someone has a, a sacrum problem, a private yoga class might be how to use, how to learn to use these asanas respecting the disc or sacrum issue. Whereas a yoga therapy class would be not about learning the asana, but how to reduce the pain from the disc or sacrum issue and how to encourage and the process of healing. So a yoga therapist has a different skill set and level of training uh, in relation to problematic conditions that can happen structurally, physiologically, psychoemotionally, and then how to uh, utilize the tools of yoga practice to help someone manage their symptoms, uh, re, uh, reduce pain, improve function, et cetera. So it's a different orientation. They're related, but it's a different orientation. Mm-hmm. So the yoga therapist might have some deeper knowledge of anatomy and treatment of um, biological, physical issues? Uh, yes. Yeah, so yoga, I mean, uh, to be, to be trained as a competent yoga teacher, uh, you don't need to know as much about anatomy and patho- uh, p- the p- pathological uh, conditions that can impact anatomy, physiology, and psychology. Mm-hmm. You need to have a basic working knowledge of anatomy to be a good asana teacher, but you don't need to understand uh, how to work with a herniated disc. It's a different level. It's a different skill set. It right. requires like, more training. So to have, I wouldn't like say a- deeper necessarily, but but more 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 knowledge and training. Let me just uh, 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 turn that phone off. Sorry about that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, sorry about that. I was just going to comment on that just by saying that um, I I agree that to be a, a good yoga teacher, you need to have a <laughs> a good working knowledge of the body, and I think that working knowledge comes from doing your practice and and doing it in a body that you're paying close attention to over a long period of time. I'm sorry. I just was texting. I think I know who that was that I'm on this podcast. So, so go ahead. Can you repeat that? I apologize. Sure. I can edit that part out too. Yeah. Go ahead and repeat what your question was. Okay. So I was just going to comment on that by saying that I agree that a, that a good yoga teacher needs to have a, a good working knowledge of the body. And that I think that comes from doing a personal practice in a body over a long period of time through different circumstances of your life and paying close attention and making observations. Um, But when working with another body, especially a body that is dealing with issues that you've never dealt with yourself, it takes a level of education, I think, to do that responsibly. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there is some confusion over what distinguishes a yoga therapist from a a one-to-one yoga teacher, especially someone who's been trained in this lineage of Desikachar, where kind of like yoga is just inherently therapeutic if it's practiced in a certain way. Correct. And so there can be some blurring of the lines there. And so I just wanted to get your help into defining those those two roles. Well, again, I mean, I, I think it's a very important distinction. Yoga has an, an, a potential to be inherently therapeutic, although just as an aside, in my early career, I made a living uh, by helping people who were harmed in other yoga classes uh, because yeah. of, uh, I, and we don't need to talk further about that, but, but that's actually how I initially got started in my career 
I was a one-on-one yoga therapist for almost 10 years before I ever taught group classes. And most of my clients were injured yoga people. And also I was living in Hawaii. So there were a lot of injured dancers, like hula dancers and, um, and, and yoga teachers, um, because uh, yoga uh, practitioners who got injured by forcing your body into postures. Mm-hmm. Um, so our work is inherently, yoga, Vinny yoga approach to practice is, has inherent therapeutic qualities um, and not all yoga does because a lot of times people think it's about the postures and so they think their job is to master postures and as a result, without being aware of their dysfunctional movement patterns, they can reinforce those dysfunctional patterns and actually further increase their structural stress. And that happens through asana, unless you do it in a different way. But that inherent therapeutic quality of yoga is different than the role of a therapist, which is to see someone who has, might even have clinically diagnosed conditions and understand what the role of yoga practice is in helping that person manage those conditions even work towards healing them. That's a different skill set and a different knowledge base. Mm-hmm. So, so when you work with someone who comes to you with uh, a physical ailment like back pain or frozen shoulder, it's really clear that there are going to be some movements that might help them. But what's your approach when someone comes to you with something like a mood disorder, uh, like anxiety or depression? Is it a different approach? Yeah, it's so, and I and I've made some e courses with Yoga International, you know, really trying to unpack and explain that to the you know the general yoga public who's interested in it. So, a, 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 a structural problem itself, like a back pain, can be a back pain that happened from a physical accident, but it could also be uh, the result of chronic emotional stress. So we're multidimensional, and sometimes the symptom is manifesting at one level, but caused at a different level. So thoughts can drive emotions. Emotions can drive behavior. Um, emotions can influence thoughts that can drive behavior. So it can, it can start in, something can start in the, a chronic low back pain can lead to uh, an irritable bowel syndrome. And uh, Irritable bowel syndrome can lead to anxiety. Anxiety can be a causal factor in irritable bowel syndrome, and long-term irritable bowel syndrome can lead to a low back pain. Mm -hmm. So part of the process is to understand the complexity of an individual's condition. Um, But if we just take a condition like back pain, I might be able to resolve the actual symptom of back pain without unraveling the irritable bowel syndrome, or I might be able to resolve the symptom of back pain without being able to address the issue of anxiety. So I might be able to give somebody a practice they can do on a daily basis to manage their back pain, but the underlying cause isn't rooted out. So it kind of depends. Now, with an anxiety condition, again, an anxiety condition is will have associated thoughts, associated feelings or moods, associated physiological response. Anxiety is sympathetic. It creates a sort of a sympathetic activation. And it may even have an associated structural issue like musculoskeletal tension. Um, And so when you're taking an individual who has a complex condition like anxiety, you want to see how that condition is manifesting and where you have the easiest access. You may begin to work in, I may work with somebody who has anxiety by first releasing tension in their neck and shoulders 
somebody else who has anxiety, my first attempt to help them manage their symptoms will be to help them sleep better because they have sleep issues or to help them manage the symptoms of uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. And then in some cases it might be working with just the, the mood and the underlying cause of the feeling of, uh, of not being secure. So it really depends on the individual. And I, I, let me just say one more thing. I don't want to make it too complicated, but human beings are multidimensional and any condition usually has multidimensional implications and the, the role of a therapist is to understand that and then to find the doorway in. And that same external sort of uh, a diagnosis in one person, the doorway in may be different than another person. So I may work with anxiety conditions in three different people. One, work with helping them sleep better. One, relieving neck and shoulder tension. One, working with the emotion of anxiety that's underlying the anxiety. Hmm. And I think it goes back to that kind of fundamental approach of that we learned from Desikachar in treating the individual according to their own interests and receptivity. So someone and comes, need and, and capacity. It, for sure. Yeah. So just saying that um, someone dealing with anxiety, one way to work with them, they might be really open to doing some breath work, which would help them man manage some of the symptoms of anxiety. Uh, another person that might actually increase their feelings of anxiety is to work with uh, breath control. Correct. So you might Correct. do some sort of uh, body release through some gentle breath and movement or something. Yeah. Or chanting, for example. Or chanting. Exactly. Yeah. So it does depend. But I mean, I think the important thing is to see that it's multidimensional. Mm -hmm. When I train therapists, um, you know, we begin by, look, how do you work with structural issues, no matter what the cause are? You know, whether the issue is the cause is anxiety or a skiing accident, how do you work with the structure? Then how do you work with, uh, and, and that involves people do, cultivating a really conscious relationship with their uh, voluntary nervous system, their neuromuscular movement patterns, and their, and their spine and how movement can be used to transform the condition of their muscles, the alignment of their bones, and their uh, surface and transform dysfunctional movement patterns. Then how to develop a conscious relationship with your physiology, how to cultivate that conscious relationship and that's via the breath with the autonomic nervous system, that sympathetic parasympathetic regulation. Mm -hmm. Where asana works with voluntary nervous system and movement patterns, breath work works with the sympathetic parasympathetic balance. So how to train people to learn to bring their system into sympathetic parasympathetic balance. Mm -hmm. And then working with mood and transforming dysfunctional emotions and, re and with pratipaksha replacing them with the more positive potential that's within them. And the deeper work is how to transform thought and our self, the story we tell ourselves. So when you're doing yoga therapy, you have to understand how all the tools can be adapted and used to bring the system into balance. And then you have to be able to read the person you're working with to find the right door to mm -hmm. enter to begin the process of transformation. Yeah. And going back to that Panchamaya model, understanding that no matter what the doorway is, it's going to have an influence on all those other aspects of them. Like if we do breath Correct. work, that's going to influence them physically and mentally. Absolutely. And, you know, if we're going to work with meditation, there's going to be an aspect of their energetic body of the breath involved with that. And also the, the physical body. So yeah, knowing that all those things are interrelated. So it doesn't necessarily at what entry point, we begin to help them, that it's going to have an effect on the whole system. 
That's a, that, that's a hundred percent correct, and that's the way we think about yoga therapy. Uh, and, and then the key is to empower the individual. I use the expression, um, and this is true about yoga as well. You know, that comes from that great yogi uh, who said, and I'm making a joke. Um, <laughs> Uh, give a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime. Our job as a yoga teacher and a yoga therapist is to teach them to fish. That is teach them to awaken to the process that they can apply for themselves. So a yoga therapist isn't doing something to a student. It's it's helping them un- learn the process through which they can do self-care. Mm. And this brings me to something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, especially, you know, as someone who has been a a yoga therapist for decades, like yourself, the biggest challenge that I face when working with clients is that ultimately yoga puts the healing in their hands. It's a complete DIY project. You have to do it yourself. You have to get, you have to get it in the boat and go out fishing. Um, and I find that, there's not a whole lot of people that I meet that are willing to dedicate themselves to their own healing journey in that, you know, I'm I'm asking them to get up every day and do a 20 or 30 minute practice. I meet very few people who actually follow through on that. So how do you work with people to inspire them to take that on for themselves? That's a very good word. Uh, Inspire them. That's part of our job is to inspire them. But so let, let me sort of come to that in a sort of circular way. Um, in my experience, the people that are the most motivated are, there's two classes of people. One is that they're in the level of pain and dysfunction in their lives is enough that when they start feeling real benefit, uh, that's a motivator for them to continue doing it. Often they'll continue doing it until they stop feeling the problem, then they'll stop. And then there's another class of people that maybe like you and me that are just, you know, have since young age been deeply interested and fascinated in this work. And, you know, it's not the motivation of getting out of pain. It's just the motivation of going deeper into this life. Yeah, like we're the easy students because we've already got this longing and drive in us. So when the teachers meet us, they're like, oh, great. Another, you know, and I've had those students of my own where it's just like, they're like a blessing because they come to you with questions and they keep practicing. And so more questions come and, uh, but I, I call them the rare birds. Yeah. 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 So we're in agreement about that. So part of the work is to, our job is to track what their interests are and to try and find a way of offering them something that is in line with where their interest and motivation is and offering them very short and efficient practices that are effective. Um, And then, uh, you know, like it could be do these five movements, which take you five minutes, you know, several times throughout the day might be more effective than, you know, a longer practice. Another thing is if they're interested and ready, there are actual methods that we Uh, are trained in to help them strengthen their will. I always sort of give this reflection with people, what's stronger, your habits or your intention? Mm -hmm. And if most people are honest, they'll they'll recognize that their habits uh, often, and forgive the word, trump their intention. Their habits are stronger than their intention. So we have uh, uh, training tools to help people over time slowly strengthen their willpower so that they can set an intention and then uh, uh, 
and then activate that intention. And so I would say that strengthening their willpower, helping them understand the importance of this practice, giving them very short and very efficient and effective practices are all part of that process. Um, and it's a relationship issue, really. Mm. They have to trust you. People, they're just not going to do it. Yeah, I think they have to see something in you that they admire or aspire to and go, okay, well, this is working for him. I can trust him then. It gives me some faith, and I'm going to give it a go. Yeah, uh, though you have to be careful with that because you don't want to, in my view anyway, uh, and I know that there are other, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I'm, since we're saying this publicly, I'll just say this in a very abstract way. There are people, even in my own tradition, who have an attraction to becoming the focal point and the guru. Um, yeah. uh, well, the, way I, uh, uh, the way I was trained and this has to do with Descartes' own, I think, education and, and influence of Jay Krishnamurti in, in his life when he was a young man, by the way, is never be a guru for someone. You're mm -hmm. an acharya. You're helping them see the journey and helping them see how to walk their journey, but empower them to walk their journey, journey and don't set up a kind of dependency with the, with, uh, in that relationship between you and them. No. I know that there are yoga teachers that are even junior to me that want to become gurus and have lots of disciples, but that's sort of antithetical to the particular tradition I was trained in. Yeah, I would agree. And I think some of those teachers then have to construct a persona that mm -hmm. they're actually hiding behind. Um, and, you know, that's just not attractive to me because I want more connection in my life and I want less identification with a, with a false persona yeah. <laughs> yes so, so you asked me early on about Descartes one of the, and when, mm -hmm. you know what I felt about him what I got from him early on was authenticity mm -hmm. just being authentic and th he would say to me there's no need for you to be anything other than who you are and and be an honest sort of presentation of th these teachings are so powerful they're not yours they just flow through you as you just you know as you study and learn and 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 do your own inner work your own agenda becomes more and more emptied of your own self-importance. The work will will shine through, and and uh, it will inspire people to do to do this work for themselves. Yeah, you'll become like a a well-tuned, well-oiled instrument that can be played, you know, by some unseen player, perhaps. <laughs> Um, well, you know, definitely, I think, and you've had this experience yourself as a teacher, you know, the more I, uh, the more I'm present with the people that I'm working with, the more I'm amazed at what comes, what appears. Mm. It's not me, it comes through me, I guess, and, and for them, what's for them, what's relevant and meaningful for them, more you empty yourself of your own self-importance, uh, exactly. but not lose sight of the training, then the more you can help people. Yeah. And that's something I talk to uh, aspiring teachers about quite a lot is that your preparation isn't constructing a class plan for the group class you're going to teach at the local yoga studio. Your preparation is your practice and this inquiry. And that when you show up, your job is then to empty yourself and be completely present with the people who are placed in front of you so that things can come through spontaneously that are appropriate to right. that situation and those Beautiful. people. So Descartes used to say, and I'm sure, or I'm not sure, but you may have heard this, you can't give what you don't have. Hmm. So it's not about accumulative knowledge. 
you you want to to take that into your own personal practice and the more that you do your own practice the more prepared you'll be which is as people used to say they just follow their intu- intuition and i think that's great but as long as you educate yourself continue to study and learn and educate yourself and then be spontaneous and present fully present with the people that are placed before you as you said yeah yeah for sure like you've got to um prepare the instrument you've got to practice your scales and then only then because if you have no technical ability and inspiration comes there's no way to communicate that to express that and so you need like in in terms of a yoga practice you have to have done countless hours of asana and pranayama you have to have that technique kind of in your bones where it's completely integrated into your being so that when inspiration shows up it can just flow through you we are speaking the same language sure oh good <laughs> um okay there's another thing i wanted to talk to you about and it's not the the sexiest topic but I think it's one that um, I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, and that's death. And I've noticed that it seems more and more in your teaching that you're talking about yoga as a way to prepare for death and the dying process. And first of all, I'm just wondering if that's due to what you went through when you had your brain surgery. Uh, No. (laughs) No? So, no. I mean... What I would say is that going through that experience deepened my understanding of this process. And I'll give you just, uh, I'll explain that in a moment. But when I first showed up in India, um, Deskachar told me that the real purpose of yoga is to prepare for the moment of death. Now imagine a 19-year-old hearing that. Hmm. And he told the story of Hiranya Kasibu, which is a kind of Puranic tale about a demon who was this great yoga practitioner, and he was a demon, which is important for yoga people to hear. Just because you're a yoga practitioner doesn't mean you're you're good. He was a demon, and he was such a strong practitioner that Shiva incarnated for him and said, you know, that he was granting him, he was proud or pleased by his practice, and what, what boon can he offer? And the boon he asked for was that he couldn't be killed uh, by man nor beast in, uh, on the earth or in the heavens uh, uh, at day or at, at night. And then he was just being a badass demon. And, you know, this uh, this is a quick version of the story. And uh, people got together to pray for help uh, from Vishnu uh, because this demon was killing people. And so Vishnu incarnates as Narasimha. Narasimha is half man, half lion. Mm-hmm. And he goes out into the battlefield and he gets Haranyakasibu and he takes him across his knee at dusk and he breaks his back. So he, he kills him. Um, he's, ha- he's not a man or beast. He's half man and beast. He's, it's, not, it's at dusk, so it's not day or night. And it's across his knee, so it's not on the earth or in the sky. That's the story. And as Hirani Kasibu is dying, he wanted to see his oldest son who was on the battlefield with him. And he, so he calls, oh, Narayana, Narayana, where are you? And his son's name was Narayana. And then he dies. And Yama, the god of death, comes with his noose. And he's... Uh, puts the noose around Hiranyakasibu's neck and he's about to take him to hell. And Narayana appears and Narayana says, Yama, what are you doing? And Yama said, this is that demon Hiranyakasibu. I'm taking him to hell. And Narayana says, no, in his last breath, he called my name and he took him to heaven. Hmm. So this was, I'm 19 years old. So he said that, that, you know, 
the, they t- the teaching that they gave me was that at the moment of, when we die, it's not over. And what happens to us when we die depends upon the karmas, the momentum we've created in this lifetime. And by the way, what can happen is, you know, that's the hell, fire, and brimstone of Vedic teaching. We, we can go to any of these levels of hell, and there's descriptions of them and all that. So so what what they say is that the where our consciousness is in the moment of death determines what happens to us afterwards. So the purpose of yoga is to prepare for that moment of death. And so what he said to me at that young age was, so die now. I mean, he didn't mean die, obviously. He meant die to my attachments, my self-importance. The purpose of yoga is, is to dive to your identification, attachment, self-importance, etc. So this is when I'm a kid. Um, so... And I, and I studied and I've been a student. And, and by the time I was 49, which is when I got diagnosed with this brain tumor, um, I had done decades of already of study and practice of, as a yoga teacher and also as a trainer of teachers and a yoga therapist. Um, and after that experience, something changed. And I didn't realize anything had changed in me, but the way I was relating to students or the way the students related to me actually changed, especially students that were older that had uh, life-threatening or terminal illnesses. Because of my own deep experiences, I was able to be with them in a different level, which is also speak, not that you should try to die, (laughs) but it speaks to this idea of the power of practice. Like for me, um, getting that, uh, let's call it near-death experience, accelerated my my own journey but it was this and but these teachings um were given to me from into my you know in my early 20 19 early 20s so i'd always been thinking about that i said at the very beginning that i was kind of as a kid fascinated with life and death and wondering why we die and what that means so Mm -hmm. for me it's been a lifelong thing and then my study of yoga uh, was sort of shaped by that original teaching that I got when I was in India as a kid uh, about the importance of yoga to prepare for the moment of death. So it's not about handstand, you know, which a lot of people think is the be all end all of yoga. Uh, It's about being able to die well. Mm. So the, so I, what I learned is yoga and Tantra teach us how to live well and also teach us how to die well. Mm -hmm. And so now, and, and, and now because of my, let's say, age and experience, especially with my own brain tumor, and then all of my work with people with life-threatening and even terminal illnesses, I feel like I have enough experience in relating to people about this topic. And the one last thing I'll say about it is that the, the last really deep personal talk I had with Deskashar um, I think I may have mentioned at the beginning of this talk that he said I was too young to study religion back when I met him and that I should study Western science because I'd be bringing yoga therapy into Western healthcare. The last talk, time I really had a long talk with him, he said, Gary, it's, bit, it's past time for you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, to come back to where your ri- original interest is, you need to share this deeper work with your students. So he sort of gave me a blessing back in, I think I was in my, maybe in my early 50s at that point. He said, you know, you really need to bring this teaching forward. So it was like I got permission from him. And then my own experience, I had confidence that I was going to be able to, to talk about these deeper topics and, and do it in a way that has gravity for people. Hmm. I think that's an important 
point is that you were at a certain stage of life where those teachings would have some gravity. Um, where I find that when younger people talk about um, things like death and dying or dealing with uh, kind of big adversities in life, if it doesn't come from a place of lived experience, it just sounds like they're relating something of someone else's experience, like what Jay Krishnamurti would call secondhand knowledge, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, or, or platitudes, you know? Yeah. Without having the depth of, of experience. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is that yoga can help prepare us for our own death by helping us to train our mind to be focused on, uh, let's say, a, a higher power or a, staying more focused on the, the positive aspects of life? So, you know, we talked about chakras and I mentioned Buddha Shuddhi. Mm-hmm. So in the death process, now those who have mapped this to most deeply are the Tibetans, which I've studied with them, but, but it's also in the Vedic tradition. Is it? Yeah. The Buddha Shuddhi is a process of, you know, the, just said it very simply, you know, in the death process, the earth, Root chakra dissolves into water. Second chakra, water dissolves into air. I mean, into fire. Third chakra, fire dissolves into air. The fourth chakra, air dissolves into ether or space. Fifth chakra, space dissolves into consciousness. Sixth chakra, consciousness dissolves into the divine. We return to the ocean. We return to the source from whence we came. That's the crown chakra. So when we do these chakra meditations, uh, which is the which is the, the, the preparation process, the way I was trained. These chakra meditations are we die to our attachments. It doesn't mean that we physically die yet, but we die to our attachments uh, that, that we don't no longer believe that uh, our true security comes from this young, strong, healthy body. Our true uh, um, uh, uh, enthusiasm and joy in life doesn't come from our ability to have sex, our self-worth is no longer dependent on what other people think of us. You see what I'm saying? It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, a meditative process where you begin to break identification and attachment at each of the levels that the chakras sort of, sort of contain and reveal. Um, so that when you do reach that end of life, that the, the, the image is, do you want to feel um, fearful and resentful uh, or do you want to feel grateful and fulfilled and, and open and curious for what happens next? Mm-hmm. And although we can't determine how and when we die exactly, what I was taught is we can influence our state of mind, and that's the work of yoga to prepare us. And then they add that where you are in that moment of death, that's going to influence what happens next, which may or may not be true. That's a metaphysical comment, but it's a motivator, certainly. Um, do the work now just in case yeah just in case (laughs) i love that yeah thanks for sharing that now how does yoga help us deal with the death of a loved one oh my god um well you you know a lot of the 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 grief is a natural process loss and grief uh, and there's no no uh, interest from what I've learned in yoga to bypass that. Um, there is the recognition that the, the, um, this, the depth of the grief is more about you than the person because the person is already gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
uh, I think yoga just helps us be in touch with our emotions and can accelerate our process of integrating uh, and moving forward in life. Um, but it's not a way of bypassing grief. I don't believe it is. That's just a, a, a deeply uh, natural human response to loss of a loved one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's not being, it's not being cold and neutral. That's not, uh, it's just being authentic with yourself, but also being what yoga can help us do is stay balanced. And of course we can use, you know, our breath techniques and so forth to maintain that physiological balance. I'd say that grief is a natural process, but there's a point at which it extends beyond what's healthy and that's, and, and then it's out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just, there's nothing in yoga that, uh, that says that if you're really advanced, you won't grieve. I don't think uh, I've ever heard any teachings like that. And what my teacher used to say is, you know, where, where things that happen that are bigger than us, um, if, if it's in our heart, then we should pray. Hmm. Uh, and if, if you have the ability to pray, that's a great gift. That's what I used to say. Prayer is a great gift. And so does prayer take, what kind of form would the prayer take on when dealing with something like uh, profound grief? Uh, you know, just um, help. It, it depends upon, you know, that relationship to an individual has to what their, what the source of their prayer is, but there's prayer for, the ongoing well-being of that fr- of that friend that that uh, died, like you know, you, that that their their soul's journey is especially in the initial stages. So it's not about you; it's about them. So you're praying that their soul's journey is is cared for or whatever. Mm-hmm. That depends upon your metaphysic, and then uh, then pray for your own strength and courage to 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 understand that that this is the reality of our lives and to find meaning purpose and happiness in life in the face of this reality. So for strength and courage. Um, so praying for, um, the soul that's passed, praying for the well-being of the other family members who are also in grief and then praying for your own strength and understanding, uh, and clarity, um, to face this, hard reality of life. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. That's, um, you know, we recently had to put down one of our dogs after, uh, being with her for over a decade. And it's uh, extremely painful, extremely painful. I mean, we're especially kind of close to our animals and, uh, see them more as family members than we do as pets. You and I share that as well, sir. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when it was time to put Sweetie down, you know, I'd actually, I couldn't draw on anything that I had learned from yoga explicitly. Uh, I I don't remember reading anything about grief and dying even really so much, other than the talk of the eternal soul. But I was guided by my intuition, and I really felt in that moment when she was passing in our arms that her soul was being freed of this long suffering and declining body. And I don't know where that came from because uh, I don't consider myself much of a believer in things that uh, I don't know to be true, but uh, this is just something that feels right to me. And so like the way you described the prayer, I found myself very much praying for 
a peaceful passage for her soul and finding in that some actual joy that, uh, that the essential part of her was free. And I think that really helped me through the, the sadness and, uh, and like longing for that little body that I missed so much and still miss. Um, and yeah, I love the part where you added about uh, praying for the others who are affected by that. Like, may they have strength and courage through this passage and then maybe finally coming to yourself and, and asking for strength and courage to, to hold the depth of feelings, to not uh, cover them up or, or wish them away so quickly, but to have the strength and courage to, to hold those feelings, which uh, can be quite painful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was her birthday today or would have been her birthday. And oh so um, that affected my wife quite deeply. And uh, we, we have an altar up in our, our kitchen with photos and some treats and candles for her. So those that was given some extra attention today. Can I share something with you? Yeah, please. Um, uh, a few years ago, we have uh, we had a loss as you did and and um, we weren't sure whether we should put her down or not, and uh -huh. we chose not to. And what's interesting is we tried um, some some Vedic prayers in the house, like Triambakam, mm -hmm. but but it was clear that she wasn't interested in that, and so <laughs> we found a medicine Buddha uh, uh, chant on the internet, and she loved it. Ah, so she was for, a Buddhist, not a Hindu. Obviously, for days, <laughs> for days, uh, in the end, um, and we were thinking about having her put down, but then when she passed in my girlfriend's arm, but for days and days, um, mm. it was a medicine Buddha in our house. And then after she passed, we did the Tibetan thing. So she stayed, we got ice, and she stayed with we, we, She stayed in the house. There was silence in the house, we, like ritual, for three days. And then we, before we took her in, and cremated her. Did so there's all kinds of ways that people deal with grief that enables them to integrate the experience in a profound transformational way. And you can't judge anybody else's process, um, but encourage them uh, to find the way that will help them move forward in integrity uh, um, and honor the, the process. For me, prayer, as I described earlier, is, is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we were just listening. We didn't have an agenda. And that's funny how the medicine Buddha came. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found um, the day that we eventually put her to rest, we were in that same kind of place of unknowing whether, mm -hmm. um, you know, we should uh, go further into debt and pay for more surgery for her or if this is like her time. And uh, she liked to lay in my yoga room when I when I practice or sing or chant. And so she was in there that morning. She was completely blind at this point. And uh, she's lying on a mat next to my mat. And I found myself called at the end of my practice to chant the Triambakam, mm -hmm. chant to her. And mm -hmm. I did that for quite a while. And she did seem to receive it. She started to go into a really deep state of rest, you know, lots of deep breathing and, Beautiful. you know, those shudders where they just really let go. Yes. And I felt in that moment that there was, there was some transmission that 
you know, she was ready. She was ready mm -hmm. to be free of that uh, painful body. And um, that's where I felt uh, really grateful for my yoga practice and this lineage, which has um, given me such a rich depth of uh, techniques, technology, practices to draw upon in these moments of need when I have to be guided by my intuition. Because I don't have a teacher around to go, what the hell do I do with this? <laughs> you know, I'm not that fortunate. Um, well, you know, and just as an aside, you know, it's so nice to meet you. And anytime I've, you have anything that I can share with you, just get in touch with me. Mm, thanks. Yeah. Okay. So I want to wrap this up. Yeah. And one of the things that I'd like to start doing with my, my podcast is um, particularly with people like you who have um, been making a livelihood as a yoga teacher for a long time is to get some advice for current yoga therapists and uh, maybe teachers who want to become yoga therapists, perhaps some career advice for them. Okay. You know, I, I was just having a conversation yesterday about the changing yoga scene because of the corporate yoga schools and the community of yoga. Uh, uneducated yoga students um, who don't really know that there is an authentic tradition of yoga and the m more popular forms now are success through Instagram and YouTube and, and having nothing to do with a deep training and experience. So it's a hard one because, you know, the world's changing. Um, I think that the number one, uh, the, the single most important thing um, for a yoga teacher or a yoga therapist to do is... You can hear the rest of the conversation by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash Brian James Teaching, where for only a few dollars a month, you'll gain access to all the podcast extras and hours and hours of yoga practice resources. Well, thanks for listening. Until next time we meet on The Medicine Path. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.